Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. All right, I want to call your attention this morning to the book of Micah. The book of Micah, chapter number one. In going through these minor prophets and considering uh, some major things that we find in the minor prophets, uh, we're looking at this morning the book of Micah, and we're looking at major identity. Looking at major identity. We'll read verse number one, then we'll pray and get into the message. The Bible said, The word of the Lord came to Micah, the Morishite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning that you would illumine your word. Lord, may it shine forth in our hearts. Lord, I pray that as we leave, may we have a greater understanding of your word, Lord, than when we came. I pray, God, that you would help us to have knowledge of your word, but Lord, may your word penetrate our hearts that it might help us in our daily walk for you that it might aid us in our understanding of you. And Lord, I pray that you would do in our lives that which you would have to be done. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at the book of Micah this morning, we're going to be considering an overview of the book of Micah. Understanding that Back in November of 2020 until February of 2021, we spent 15 weeks in this book. We were together, I went back and looked at the times we were together in this book for a little over 11 and a half hours. I'm not planning on keeping you that long today, but there is a lot in this book. There's a lot to cover, a lot to see, a lot to know. Uh, as we gather around this book, I want us to understand some things. And Charles Spurgeon put it this way when he wrote about the book of Micah. He said this, Walking with God denotes an, act, an active habit, a communion in the common movements of the day. Some bow humbly before God in the hour of prayer. Others sit humbly in His presence at the time of meditation. Others work themselves up to draw near to God in seasons of religious excitement. But all this falls short of walking with God. Walking with God is a commonplace 
an ordinary rate of progress, and in it does not seem to require great effort. But then it is a practical working of working pace, a rate at which one can continue on and on and make a day's journey by the time the sun is down. And here's what he said in his, in his closing statement. So walking with God means being always with God. You say, how can we do that? I'm hoping and praying by the end of the message this morning we can understand how that we can do that. And even Micah tells us in the, in the closing, well, not, not the exact closing, but in chapter number 6, Micah tells us what it is to walk with God, explains to us what it is to walk with God, but hopefully by the end of the message we'll understand how that we as the children of God can walk with God. We can be as Enoch was. We can walk with God. It's possible in our lives. Uh, Enoch was no better than we are. He just was always with God. And he understood some things, and hopefully we'll understand those things this morning. That being said, looking at this morning, this book, I want to look at five different things, and I... And it kind of progressively walks through uh, the book of Micah. I want us to look at the man. I want us to look at the message. Look at the Messiah. We're going to look back at the message. And then we're going to look at the God of mercy. And that outline should be in your bulletins. And you can follow along with that. And uh, as Jeffrey said last week, as Reese would say, you can put the answers there if you'd like. But anyway, uh, I, I'm looking forward to going through this overview. And, and we're basically, we're as if we're in a plane and we're on the runway and we're going to take off and then we're going to land again. Uh, so that being said, I want us to begin by looking at the man Understanding that Micah's hometown is Moriseth Gath. You find that in verse number 1 of chapter number 1 and also in verse number 14. That town is about 25 miles southeast of Jerusalem. The mention of his hometown probably means that Micah was not in his hometown at the time but was ministering elsewhere, including ministering in Jerusalem. Micah was a skilled orator. He was, he was good with his words. Uh, he was a master at metaphors. He was a genius at wordplay and blunt and vivid imagery. Uh, he could draw a picture. And as you go through the book of Micah, when you're reading it, you'll see Micah's drawing pictures. He's given us things to see. It's interesting as we look at the book of Micah, few prophets saw the future any more clearly than Micah saw it. Few of them could, could visualize the future like he did. 
Micah prophesied the fall of Samaria in chapter 1 and verse 5 through 9. He prophesied Jerusalem's destruction in chapter 1, verse 1, verse 16, and chapter 3, verse 12. He prophesied the Babylonian captivity and the return from exile in chapter 4, verse 6 through 10, as well as the birth of God's future Davidic king that would sit and reign on the throne that would be born in Bethlehem. He told us that in chapter 5 and verse number 2. You say, why is it important that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem? It's important because God, through Micah, prophesied in chapter 5 and verse number 2 that he'd be born in Bethlehem. So it is important when we come to the New Testament that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. There's a reason that God took Joseph and Mary down to Bethlehem. Why? So that that king would be born in a manger there in Bethlehem. Because God had before prophesied it. You and I understand the ministry that Micah had was between 730 and 690 B.C. That was a period of time that he covered as his ministry overlapped with Isaiah. He was in line with Isaiah. He was a contemporary of Hosea. And all of those were around the same period of time. Even the elders in Jeremiah's day, those elders of the city in Jeremiah's day remembered Micah's prophecy as having spurred Hezekiah's religious reform and you find that in jeremiah chapter 26 and verse number 17 through 19 understand that hezekiah had some reform i don't know that hezekiah actually gave his life to the lord or or was one of gods at that point in time but they understood that it was the prophecies of Micah that caused Hezekiah to have that religious reform. So we understand the man, and there's a lot more that could be understood about the man. In fact, we spent one entire message when we went through this series on the book of Micah preaching a message on God's unlikely means. Talking about, talking about Micah and what he did and, and what he accomplished. But I want us to look not only at Micah, but I want us to see the message. What is the book of Micah about? What's happening? What's going on? What's taking place? Why is Micah prophesying against Israel? You and I know that by looking at the prophets, and it's, it, it, all of these prophets are in a span of time, so a lot of this is overlap of what's happening, what's going on, and what's taking place, as even other prophets have mentioned. So we understand that both Israel and Judah experienced affluence, material prosperity in the late 8th century B.C. In the, southern, uh, in the south, King Uzzah's military advancements and his victories brought with them wealth for some people. 
there were some among God's people that were getting wealthy. Most of that was the leaders, the prophets, and there were some among them that were getting wealthy. But at the time they were getting wealthy, there was a poorer class of farmers that were getting poorer instead of gaining from that wealth. It wasn't spread abroad. It wasn't, it wasn't enjoyed by all. A wealthy merchant class developed and many poor farmers found themselves at the mercy of the government-supported businessmen. And as they found themselves there, it became more, the, the, the dealings with Israel became more corrupt. So God's prophets began to speak against Israel, against the leaders, against the, uh, the prophets that are, are the, the religious leaders of that day. They were speaking against the, the, the political leaders. They were speaking against the religious leaders because they were becoming more corrupt. They were doing things that were forbidden for them to do. Their ill-gotten gain had corresponded with their godlessness. They were faithless. Even those that put on a facade of religion were faithless. They weren't obedient in the things of God. Remember as we looked at the introduction to these, uh, these minor prophets, we considered some of the things that all these prophets are going to cover. They're going to talk about the God that had rescued them from Exodus, brought them out of Egypt. They were going to talk about how that Israel was not following through with the covenant that they had made with God. What is the covenant they had made with God? Back at Mount Sinai. When God had issued the law, what did Israel do? Israel entered into a covenant with God. They said, all that you tell us, we will do. There's no wonder we find in the book of Judges that time and time again we find that God rescues a people and then immediately it says they do what is right in their own eyes. Immediately they enter into some sort of bondage. God sends a rescuer. They have the rescuer and what do they do? They do that which is right in their own eyes. Over and over and over again in the book of Judges. That is Israel. Let's not be, let's, let's not have too much of a spirit of condemnation against Israel because is that not what we do? Right. Yes. <laughs> On a daily basis, is that not what we do? Yeah. Yeah. We, we say, God, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And that's what we're trying to get at even in what we said in opening this morning. We don't have to say, God, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. What we need to do is rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm getting way ahead of myself. But rest in the Lord Jesus Christ 
in the fact that He's already done it. And the more that we rest in that, the more that we will love Him, the more that we will live for Him, the more we will do for Him because we do love Him because He first loved us. And now I got way ahead of myself. So let me back up and cover what's, what's going on here and what's happening. These, these people are taking the lands of the poor and they're selling them. That was expressly forbidden for them to do. In Leviticus chapter 25 and verse number 23 and Numbers chapter 36 and verse number 7, God forbade that they sell the land of the poor. But they were doing that. And they were putting them under oppression. When when anyone takes the people of God and puts them under oppression whether it be political oppression, whether it be religious oppression, whether it be moral oppression, whether it be whatever oppression it is, God is not pleased. God is not even pleased with men who will stand in a pulpit and place His children back under bondage when they've been set free. God's not pleased with that. You and I are to remember and recall what the Lord has done for us and what the Lord is doing for us. So those, those forms of bondage, those forms of, of even as we look back in, in the other prophets, we've already seen that they would, they would place them under these bondages, they would place them in these difficulties, And they wouldn't even provide legal help for them. So they weren't giving them what they were supposed to be giving them. But I want us to look not only at the message, at what was going on, what was taking place, and and Micah tells them what's happening. Micah doesn't come and say, God's going to destroy you. And everybody says, why? He said, God's going to destroy you, and this is why. You're going, into this, you're going into this captivity, and this is the purpose. This is the reason. You say, if God doesn't like it when people put His people under bondage, why is God putting His people under bondage? Understand something. God is letting happen what He would have prevented had they been walking for Him. God isn't placing them under bondage. God is doing what they are wanting and pulling back away. So their going under bondage has nothing to do with God putting them under bondage. But they're going under bondage because God has not placed that protection upon them because they're not wanting it. They're walking away. They're saying... It's almost when Israel said, we want a king. God said, okay, here's your king. Sometimes we get what we ask for. In our own lives, we get what we ask for. But then we, we not only see the man, we not only see the message, but we see the Messiah. 
understanding that as this prophet preaches, there are two warning sections that he gives in this first part of the book. The two warning sections that he gives is chapter number 1 and chapter number 2, the biggest part of chapter number 2, and then chapter number 3 and chapter number 4, the beginning of chapter number 4. At the end of each of these two warnings, Micah offers a section of striking promise, the promise of hope. The first is a poem of how God is like a shepherd who is going to rescue and regather his flock, which are the remnant of his people. And you find that in chapter 2, verse number 12 through 13. He's going to bring them all back to good pasture. And he's going to become their king once more. He reminds them that the ruined temple at Jerusalem will not be permanent. He tells them that's not permanent. One day God will exalt His temple. He will fill it with His presence and fill the city with the remnant of His people. He tells them that in the new Jerusalem, He will have a new messianic king from the line of David that will come from Bethlehem. And we find that in chapter 5, verse number 2. Can I just say something here? When Christ died on the cross, He won the victory. He did not win a partial victory. He is victorious. Christ is victorious. He's victorious over sin. He's victorious over death. He's victorious over hell. He's victorious. And He is the King who will rule and reign forever. He is seated upon the Father's throne at this time. Then then Micah turns, if you will, when he gets to chapter number 6, he once again turns back to the message. And once again, Micah exposes the unjust economic practices of Israel and its leaders. And how it's destroying the land and destroying the people. This destruction that we find in the book of Micah is a self-destruction. And can can I just be frank and honest with you? If God, right now, God's not going to, but if God were to remove His common grace from this world, we would, in a matter of seconds, self-destruct. What are you talking about? I'm talking about every man, woman, boy, and girl that is born understands it's not right to kill. They understand it's not right to steal. If they didn't, when they did kill and they did steal, they wouldn't run and hide. What are you saying? God has written His law upon the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. 
Our children know when they have done something wrong. What is it that parents have said? It's too quiet. Why is it too quiet? Because they're in the corner hiding. Why are they in the corner hiding? Because they've done something that was wrong. We know that. Why? Because of the common grace of God. But if that were gone, every man would literally do what is right in their own mind. And when they did that, we would self-destruct. What are you saying? I'm saying that, that Micah is reminding them and telling them that their, their destruction, their, their disaster that they're entering into is a self-destruction. They're entering into it because they're not doing what God said. Everything that God gave us, everything that God says is for our good. And, and, and we've, I've said this before. It is good not to commit adultery. One reason it's good not to commit adultery is somebody might blow your brains out. It's just safer for you not to do that. It's safer for you not to steal from somebody. Again, they might just blow your head off. It's just good not to do that. The things that God has set for us are for our good. They're for our benefit. They're for His glory. But Micah goes back to the message and he explains to them that their destruction is a self-destruction. It is here that Micah offers his famous words of summary as he tells them in chapter 6 and verse number 8. He makes this statement. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's that's the whole thing that Spurgeon was talking about. That's That's where he took that from. What is it to walk with God? What is it to be there and walk with God? Well, if we're going to understand what it is to walk with God, then we need to understand the ending of this book. We need to understand that it ends with another very powerful note of hope. In the latter portion of this book, Israel is personified as an individual. Seen as an an individual. That individual is watching for God's mercy and he begs God to listen and to forgive. And as he does that, the question arises, after Israel has done what they've done, and as this person is seated, and as this person is watching for the mercy of God, and as they're begging for forgiveness, and they're begging for uh, uh, God to listen to them and to forgive them, here's the question that comes up. Why? Why should God listen? Why should God forgive a faithless and rebellious people? 
Why? There's two reasons. And they're found in chapter number 7, verse number 18 down through verse number 20. The Bible tells us here in verse number 18, Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth of Jacob and the mercies to Abraham, which thou hast shown unto the fathers from the days of old. The two reasons as he begs for God to listen and he begs for God's forgiveness the two reasons why God will forgive and why God does listen is number one found in God's character. Who is God? He tells us in verse number 18, Who is a God likened unto thee? What, what is this God? It is he that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Look at this. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth what? In mercy. The God of mercy. He's a merciful God. Aren't you glad he's a merciful God? I fail him often. And he continues over and over and over again to forgive me. It wasn't as if he adopted me and the first time I messed up, he knocked me away and said, you're no more mine. He's merciful. Not only that, but we find in verse number 20, because God is is a promise-keeping God. <laughs> Can I just say this? There isn't but one promise-keeper. I don't care what kind of movements you start. I don't care what you call them. There isn't but one promise-keeper, and that's God. He keeps the promises He makes in the Word of God. And he told here in verse number 20, Thou will perform the truth to Jacob. And the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast shown unto our fathers from the days of old. Micah says, We've seen you do it, God. We know you're going to do it again. That's the reason he could offer that promise of hope. He saw the destruction coming. He saw that Samaria was going to fall. He saw that Assyria was going to come in. He saw that Babylon was going to come in. He saw that they were going to be exiled. He saw that they were going to return from exile. He saw the new Jerusalem. He saw all of these things. Why are these things? 
because God is a merciful God and He is a promise-keeping God. How does that apply to us? If we're honest with God and we're honest with ourselves, we too are a faithless and rebellious people. Much of the time in our life, we don't believe God as He says He's going to do. And we walk against God. We dwell among a faithless and godless and rebellious people. How do we as God's children in that case, how do we do what he said in verse number 8 of chapter number 6 and walk with our God? There is but one that is always with God. What does the Bible say? The Bible says he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Where is he? He's in the presence of God. Who are we? We are his. Where are we found? We're found in him. In the presence of God. How does that help our walk? You and I can only walk with God as often and as much as we remind ourselves of who we are and whose we are. Our walking with God has nothing to do with our tasks Our walking with God has nothing to do with our abilities or our inabilities. Our walking with God is remembering who we are. Is is in remembering who we are and in resting in who we are and having Christ manifest Himself through us. How does he do that? As we aid and help our neighbors on a daily basis? As we love God more? How do we love God more? By recalling God's love for us. We love him because he first loved us. We don't love him because we decided to love him. We love him because he first loved us. So the only way that we truly love God more is we understand God's love for us more. Because the more we understand His love, the more we want to love. The more my wife demonstrates her love and the more I see her love, the more I want to love her. And the more I want to love her, the more she wants to love me. And we have a wonderful relationship. It's the same way with God. 
the more we are reminded of His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, the more that we are reminded. That does not say that we don't ever look at ourselves and understand that we have failed God. We do that and we go back to God and we understand that He's a God of mercy and He's a God of forgiveness and we can go back to Him. That's the more that we understand the love of God that the more we mess up, the more we can go back to God. So as Brother Charles said this morning in the devotion, stop! Stop trying! Stop being defeated because of failure! Get up and go forward! A just man falls seven times, but he rises back up! How does he rise back up? He rises back up in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is but one just man. We cannot pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We have no bootstraps. There's nothing to pick up. We're not good enough. But He is. And we're in Him. And we can rest because we're in Him. And therefore, Christ can manifest Himself in us the more that we rest in Him. Let's pray.